What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at TalkLouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, TalkLouderPodcast.com, where you can find links to our merch and also links to our previous 100 plus episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And man, today we are honored to have easily one of the greatest bass players to ever walk the planet. We've got Billy Sheehan on the Talk Louder podcast today. And uh, man, what a history, what a player, what a great guy. Uh, so many stories to share, so many accomplishments, and uh, he was just magnificent. He's uh, one of the nicest, genuine people in the music business. I, I, you could probably say that about quite a few people, but um, you know, people in the music business get a uh, a bad rap because they're they might be having a bad day and they treat some fans they kind of diss some fans i don't see billy being able to even let that happen <laughs> uh we talk about that a little bit and how how he actually enjoys you know making someone's day just by giving them a an autograph just by writing his name or saying hello or anything like that it's really it just proves that it's really easy to make someone's day just by acknowledging them and give them a fist bump or you know signing something for them it takes two seconds and yeah. uh he's like the king of that um yeah. you know there's we talk about talus uh the new record 1985 and and we get into that but we also go through uh, myself guilty, a uh, bunch of name dropping, um, but I at least kind of wait for him to mention th that first before I kind of throw it in there. Um, the history uh, between us and and uh, and uh, Talis uh, is the Ingve show yeah. because I feel like that may have been the first time Talis had come through san antonio or austin it's very possible they came through opening for van halen in 1980 just a few years earlier um we didn't really get into into that part of his touring history and texas where me and dave are but uh what a great great time i had today talking to this gentleman yeah absolutely and of course you know we're talking about talus they've got a new record coming out called 1985 it drops in september and talus is the band that we first saw billy sheehan perform in uh of course he went on to play with david lee roth mr big the winery dogs he's currently in sons of apollo which we didn't even touch on today uh the guy has done so much um and he's got so many great stories associated with each step in his career and he was so kind to share them with us today uh we should just let him do the talking billy sheehan on the talk louder podcast my co-host here jason mcmaster has some history with you and actually um I have some history with you. The first time I ever saw you was with Talis opening for Ingve Malmsteen in 1985 on the Rising Force tour. I saw you in San Antonio, Texas, and the very next night in Austin, Texas, Jason's band Watchtower opened for you right. on, that, on that same tour. Well, that's cool. That's a little history. In the old airplane hangar, the Austin City Coliseum. 
Right on, right on. Yeah, yeah. And then you, years later, you, we were at the Rainbow, and I'm at the bar, and it was a little busy, and I caught the barkeep's attention, and I put in my order, and you leaned in and said, and and add a blah 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 and a blah 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 to it, and I'm paying for it. <laughs> And wow. I was like, whoa. Right. And I looked over and it was Billy Sheehan. And I'm like, awesome. Man. So, so thank you again. My pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about that tour a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, it was the first time you came on to my radar. You're out with Ingve Malmsteen with Talis. Um, and you had previously uh, done a tour with Van Halen in 1980 uh, as the opener with Talis. So, Compare and contrast those two tours because Van Halen at that point is already well on their way to world domination and you're playing big places, I assume. And then yeah. with Ingve, you're an upcoming band and honestly, so is Ingve at that time. So take us back to those two tours and sort of compare and contrast them for us. Oh uh, yeah. The, the Van Halen tour in 1980, uh, they were, uh, I, I always say on their worst night, they were only spectacular. They were so great. <laughs> <laughs> they were, we stayed every night after our show and watched every show and they're just unbelievable. Uh, great people too. They were very kind to us. They let us do encores and stuff like that. And, uh, wow. uh, they, when, when the tour started, you know, we didn't know those guys at all. We're from, we're from the other side of the country over in Buffalo, New York. Right. And we're, uh, in the dressing room waiting to go on. The dressing was kind of L shaped. So, where I was seated, I could see the door, but no one else in the room could see who was walking in. So I'm seated there, and the door opens up, and in walks Ed Van Halen. And the first thing he goes is, uh, he goes, uh, which one of you guys is Billy Sheehan? <laughs> so I said, me, me, I am. And uh, I don't know how he heard of me prior to that. It might have been from Denny Carmasi, because Denny, I'd worked with Denny uh, on the Michael Schenker record in 79. And uh, we worked a little bit together. Uh, so maybe that's where it came from. But the, later on, the guys in the band said, if you could have seen your face, <laughs> we saw, we knew somebody walked in. We didn't know who it was, but that uh, was pretty cool. And they, they were very, very kind to us. And uh, we played, uh, you know, pretty huge arenas. Yeah. The Oakland Coliseum. We did uh, all, all across the country, too. I think it was the last leg of their tour for uh, Women and Children First. Wow. We ended down in Florida, and uh, that was uh, that was uh, how everything began for me. Uh, by uh, uh, later on, of course, Dave contacted me, and uh, I went to play with him. But uh, uh, the Ingve tour, we had just signed with a William Morris agency uh, in Dallas, and also got a record deal with Gold Mountain Record. Danny Goldberg. He later went on to uh, manage Nirvana and a wonderful guy in the music biz. And uh, and that same week, we got those two calls for William Morris and from Danny Goldberg. And then a third call came in, and that was Dave Roth's office, uh, uh, seeing if I'd, I'd like to speak with Dave about uh, being in his movie. And I thought, what? Huh? Movie? <laughs> and so I was going out to LA to start the tour with Ingve that the William Morris agency set up. And I would be there, for a, have a day off when I got there. So I went to, uh, they picked me up and took me out to Dave's house. And uh, he said, there is a movie, but uh, that's not why I, I 
called you. And there's, wow. there's a, I, I, I want to, I, I, he goes, I, I left Van Halen. I want to start a band. And so you and me, let's go find a guitar player. Let's go find a drummer. And wow. And I said, well, I always said, I would never leave Talos for any band other than Van Halen. I said, right. you know what? Close enough. <laughs> I was going, <laughs> wow, I was going, that's, it's like some secret squirrel going on. I want you to be in my movie. Yeah, it worked out. And I had actually spoken with Ed when I got there the day before. I called him up and said, hey, Ed, we're playing with Ingve uh, at the Palladium. Like, you know, I wanted to invite you down. I go, oh, I'm in the middle of some stuff. I can't come. You know, sorry. He goes, yeah, I'm going to have a meeting with Dave tomorrow. He goes, what? You're going to have a meeting with Dave? And because uh, nobody knew anything at this point. And I thought, geez, I just opened my mouth. Uh, I go, yeah, he said he wanted to talk to me about his movie or something. And so Ed goes, you got to call me back as soon as you get back from the meeting and tell me what happened. Cause we think he's going to pull an Ozzy Osbourne, meaning he's going to leave the band, be the lead guy and hire new guys around him. Like apparently Ozzy Osbourne did with black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So, uh, needless to say, after having the meeting with Dave, I thought, okay, if I call Ed and, and rat Dave out, I'm going to lose that gig. <laughs> Uh, so I just said, I just, I'll, let me just keep my mouth shut from here on out. And uh, years later, I spoke with Ed again. We we, we became friends after I left uh, Dave, and we, we laughed about it then. But so that whole tour with Ingve and Talis, uh, I couldn't say anything. So I knew that when the tour is over, we're going to have a little meeting, and I tell these guys, you know, sorry, I got to go. Uh, so it was a, it was a bittersweet to say the least. Yeah, it was God. a great tour. Ingve would go on on stage, and, and I'd go on stage. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, and he was just on fire. I was so he was just so great, yeah. and he was always great with me, very kind to me, and very cool. Uh, uh, I, I have great, great regard and respect for Ingve. Uh, he just really was a grandmaster, and he he really turned the course of history for guitar in many ways. Uh, yeah. yes. similar, to, similar to Ed, Ed on a much grander scale, of course, uh, without a doubt. No, there's no arguing that. But Ingve, when that first record came out, man, he spun everybody's head around. Right. Well, oh, you yeah. know, I we could say the same about you on the bass. Well, that's very kind. I uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a question. Not kind, it's fact. Yeah, it is. It's tr it's truth. I think it's pretty well known. It's fact. not boasting. It's truthing. Truthing. Um, you. You're you uh, you're you're based out of Buffalo um originally and uh did you have a buffalo road crew uh, yeah yeah everybody was from from uh buffalo on the crew uh phil and mark lead singer and drummer were from rochester because buffalo was mostly talent space but buffalo and rochester we incestuous uh, relationship we had with uh, the different bands between the two buffalo rochester toronto uh, a bunch of other cities, all in kind of close proximity. We all kind of got each other's radio stations too, so we could hear hear what was oh, going yeah. on in the other cities. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, the crew guys were all from Buffalo. And, the, uh, the your sound man was it? Do you, who who ran sound on that tour? I think it was Rick Deesing. Okay. You Do you remember to... a guy named Tim Mark? They called him Quake. Yeah, or... Quake. Oh, it might have been Quake. It was Quake. Yeah, yeah. Quake. Quake ended up. Uh, being my i learned so much from him he was my i met him in 89 and did like a an 11 month tour with quake at the helm and he was my 
he was my tour dad. He was it was my first big <laughs> tour I'd ever done, and I just learned everything from Quake. And I just ran into him recently in Atlantic City. But yeah, uh, me and my yeah. band, we just learned oh, everything great. from him. And and he all would the, tell us. The... He would tell us about days with, you know, and the crew was from Buffalo. Like, yeah. like more than half of our guys were from Buffalo, and they worked under Quake with other projects. But he would talk about Talus all yeah. the time, and we would tell us again, Dad, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> it was great. It was great. You know, our crew got all of our crew guys went on to, dare I say, greatness. Rick yeah. Deason was the, one of our sound guys. He went off. He was mixing Slayer for years and a lot of huge, heavy, heavy bands. He's still very active. Great front house. Quake, we've been all over with a million bands, uh, all huge, famous things. We had a lighting guy named Butch. He went on to do Christina Aguilera and all these huge acts and one of the uh, huge lighting guy. Uh, Jimbo was uh, one of our main guys, too. He uh, went on to work for uh, Center Staging in L.A. And, you know, it was just a uh, he had a huge career in the uh, production business. Um, uh, Fire, uh, he was uh, he's still a dear friend of mine. He lived here in Nashville briefly. Uh, he went on to he, I, I forgot what exactly what it, what it is he he does but he was a he was a, a internal part of our of our whole thing but everybody that ever worked or went through the talus camp went somewhere <laughs> they, they wow, that's it's good to be able to say that i feel you know pretty cool talent talent on stage and behind the scenes yeah that's right so yeah. let's let's talk talus a little more in the modern sense. Uh, you've got a brand new album coming out. What's the release date on that? October September twenty third. September twenty third. Okay, yeah. September twenty third. Uh, the album's titled nineteen eighty five, and essentially it's what would have been your fourth album had talus stayed together at that time. Is that correct? For the most part, we had, we hadn't had a real plan at that point, but I'm sure all those songs would have been on it. And uh, we were pretty prolific writers, and Phil as well uh, writes a lot. Uh, so we had enough material, and we did get signed. But then again, like I said in the beginning of my story here, uh, at that point I had to leave, and they I left them with the name. I actually uh, uh, sold the name to them for one dollar. As a, uh, you know, you have to do that in business. It's got to be some money yeah. changed hands. Right. So, will you guys go ahead and I'll do what I can to help you and uh, whatever. They got a few other guys here and there. Unfortunately, it didn't stay together. Uh, and but Phil went on and he uh, sang with a million bands and recorded constantly and performed constantly. Mark Miller kind of dropped out of the biz a little bit, but still continued to play. And uh, Johnny Angel moved out to L.A. Mitch moved back to L.A. Mitch Perry. And so I saw him out there once in a while when I was hanging around, both of them. So uh, what was the question? I forgot. <laughs> uh, no, I was just, uh, I was just confirming that that album would have essentially oh, been that's right. with the Sorry. album. Sorry. No, uh, it's okay. right. So uh, some of those songs were recorded on the live Speed on Ice record, but that that's record, right. it was kind of a hurry up and we were kind of pushed into it. <laughs> the record company at that time, Important Records or Relativity Records, and combat, they were all they were all kind of the same label. Uh, you know, come on, we got to put a new record out with a with a new band lineup. And I said, yeah, we're we're not ready, really. So they recorded the live shows, and it was okay. But all of us felt, man, we wish we'd had a little time to just to let this sink in more and 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 do it properly and stuff. But I, I like the record; uh, it, it captures a moment. But it, it 
it was hurried up and we, we, there was aspects of it that, uh, weren't to our liking completely. So how many, how many songs from that live record ended up on 1985? I'm not sure. Cause I forgot which ones were on it. There's at least two. I'm yeah. pretty sure there's at least two intermounting fire. And I think there's, there's at least one more. Um, I've listened. Let's, let's keep moving. I, I uh, listened to uh, the new single, and uh, I, I dig it. I dig the album cover. I love the uh, album I think, cover. Yeah, I think, that, I think that when you call something 1985, you've got to have something that encompasses that a little bit that's uh, <laughs> kind of a heavy – uh, like, well, there's no doubt when I, my eyes see that my brain does something and you guys nailed that. So who's ever idea brain, that your brain, your brain goes back to the future. Who did exactly. <laughs> that was, that was Hugh Uh, what a legendary, oh, wow. uh, yeah. uh, uh, album cover artist and oh, a wonderful guy. We're in great debt to him for, uh, for doing this for us. Uh, really, really wonderful. He was friends with Phil as well. And uh, he just nailed it. It was so great. I remember when I first got it and opened up that, that little PDF file. It was like, perfect. This is exactly yeah. what we're talking about. And uh, Back to the Future was 1985 also. Yeah. So that was uh, quite, a, quite a coincidence there. And, uh, and we also, uh, the way I've been describing the record, uh, when, we, when we decided to record it, we had two choices. We could slick everything up and modernize it, bring it up to date and, you know, revamp it and renovate it and make it a new thing or get in a time machine and go back to 1985. And, and you signed, made this album cover pretty, pretty great. I thought. And, uh, yeah. and that's what we did when we were recording the record too. We just decided, let's do it the way we did it. And we set up in Mark Miller's living room in the house that he built on the drum kit that he built. And we went through the basics of the tracks, laid them down. Uh, I did, uh, I did uh, any bass uh, changes or fixes here in my studio. And then uh, uh, Phil sang, Akiri did his guitar here as well. Phil sang in Toronto and with either Zoom or FaceTime, uh, I, I, we would, it would be our talk back from Nashville to Toronto and on my music computer, uh, we had some software called Audio Movers and uh, it would allow me to listen in real time. I have no idea how they do that. It's like wow. beyond magic. So I could listen in real time to the mix and Phil singing through my uh, studio monitors, uh, you know, full uh, fidelity. Wow. And then we could talk back so I could produce the, uh, the, the vocals with them face-to-face uh, -face on, on. So we really, as, as much as we went back to the future, we utilized the futuristic uh, digital uh, formatting here to, uh, to do a record in two different cities because during the pandemic and nobody could travel much. And, right. Uh, well, so you, kind of, you kind of were living in some kind of time machine. <laughs> Yeah. real time <laughs> one foot in the, the past the, and one foot in the modern technology the joke yeah. is on us you know wow uh, so we should talk we should tell people that haven't seen the album cover it's a it's a delorean hence all the back to the future references it's sort of a wrecked delorean out in the woods kind of with everything growing over it um and and hugh his credits include also rush and fate's warning so people might be familiar with uh some of his previous we artwork. could do it's a whole a, we could do a whole podcast on hugh's sign there's yeah, no it's, yeah. it's a, so really it, it lends a great visual to your album great. Um, so when you're putting that album together obviously you're revisiting the music what memories come rushing back to you 
at that time that you're you're revisiting these songs that have been sitting basically idle since 1985 and you're thinking about putting this album out i'm yeah. sure your head is going you know your memories are come rushing back tell me a little absolutely. bit absolutely yeah it was a, a time of a glorious struggle the struggle was real and it was a real struggle we were slamming two hours a night, uh, pack the gear up, get in the van or band car or whatever we were traveling at the time, go to the next city, you know, uh, on no sleep, uh, hit it again and, you know, finally get uh, like a Motel 6 somewhere to close your eyes for a couple hours and then do it again and do it again. So we were hitting it really hard and there was no, as you both know, I'm sure there's no guarantee if you get a record deal or, or some little bit of uh, a step of towards success, no guarantee that anything's going to happen, you know? So we were just kind of running on, on, uh, fumes, uh, to keep going and going and going until something broke. And Talos was kind of like that for quite a while since uh, since the late 70s. We just, I remember uh, on the Van Halen tour, uh, John Kalodner, a uh, famous uh, record company exec and uh, producer, on the side of the stage, jumping up and down. Talos, this is the best live band in America. We thought, we're signed, this is it, woo! Never heard from him again. Wow. <laughs> we, we did a showcase for Clive Davis himself in a in a rehearsal room in New York City. Band on stage, Clive Davis and three other guys in suits sitting. No pressure, no pressure, <laughs> just sitting in front. And we did our whole set. And, you know, we, we played like there's a ten thousand people here. We got done, and uh, the, the band band live is just amazing. We love the band live. We, we want to hear some more material. So we go in the studio, record some stuff, send it down there. Arista Records gets it. Hey, this material is great. Really fantastic. You know, but we're, we're wondering, how's the band live? <laughs> we just did this. And so yeah. it went on and just never went anywhere. So <laughs> it, was, it was a very frustrating and very uh, difficult time for me personally, because I, I, I didn't know if anything would ever happen, I could be working at a donut shop uh, in uh, in uh, Lackawanna, New York, or something like that. The, you know, the music business, the music business, always it, it never surprises me now at this point. The blind leading the sighted. Yeah, you know? oh, very, very true, very true. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, on that note, uh, you said you know what were what were some uh, I call them disposable jobs that you get when you're young that are sort of in between <sighs> gigs, you know, to keep gas in the truck or whatever what what were some of the jobs you might have had there in buffalo growing up before you know sort of in between you know i got to get off this time because i have a gig tonight you know i can't work that day because i'm going on tour or blah 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 what well, you do? I, uh, I was always able to support myself by playing which was oh, amazing, amazing. Unbelievable. That's, that's, and a lot of bands at that time did i mean i had my oh, own apartment yeah. i had my car uh all of us and we had uh crew sound truck lights wow. office agent manager all of that was financed by us playing live in clubs wow. and that was wow. pretty incredible ah, you guys were us four a bit crew guys yeah. uh, on salary you know so we we hit it hard but at one point in the very early years just because i wanted more money so i could buy more gear uh the guy who started me playing his name is joe hesse he's a bass player in buffalo lived around the corner from me He's a real cool guy and a bass player. I wanted to be like Joe, so I started playing bass to be like Joe. And he uh, he stopped playing for a while and started doing carpet installation. So he'd say, hey, if you want to want to help me, I'll pay you by the day. And so I'd get home at night from playing, and uh, I'd hear him beat the horn outside my apartment, get up, 6 in the morning, go out, get in the truck, 
and Joe's a little guy and I'm a skinny twig and uh, we're, we're all in these like four or 500 pound rolls of carpeting, <laughs> carpeting all this uh, crazy stuff. And uh, man, I was rolling in money at the time. I, I didn't really need the carpeting. And he, he, he paid me on an honor basis to, well, what are you worth today? I go, uh, maybe 40 bucks, you know, okay, here, here you go. Or uh, yeah, I, I was slow, give me 20 or, you know, whatever. Wow. So we had the honor system of being paid, and which was quite nice. And he's still one of my dearest friends that we joke about our carpet installing days. But I was playing every night. We played almost every single night. Wow. Back in the day, we did 21 nights in a row. We did, one day we did three full shows in one day. Wow. Set up in the morning, did a show, tore down, went to Niagara Falls, played or a Buffalo Bills uh, exhibition game for the people after the game. Got done with that, tore down, went to the club Lakewood in Niagara Falls and played that show. Uh, so we hit it hard. So uh, uh, later on, the travel of, of that was mostly just in the Buffalo area. But then later on, when we started traveling, doing the Ingbe tour, like I said earlier, those two hours of hot, sweaty, and then getting it to go somewhere. So it was a, it was a it was a struggle. No, nothing, nothing came easy. That's for yeah. sure. Well, yeah. as as Dad used to say, hard work is the only thing that pays off. No kidding. I yeah. agree. Yeah. And uh, I, I wish today's scene was better for younger players. They get to get out and perform because we were on stage all the time. I mean, it was uh, everything I tried out on my base. Every new thing was always tested live for show after show after show after show. We had to sing. And then when we first started singing, there was, I remember the first time I saw a monitor. I go, what's this box on the stage? <laughs> That's a monitor. <laughs> a what? <laughs> oh, yeah, well. So we can hear ourselves? Unbelievable. Yeah. We used to turn the PA a little bit so we could kind of hear the edge of the you know, yeah. what was coming up. And I got taste from back in the day. We're on pitch. We're okay. Sure. Wow. Well, that's if you play every night, you you figure yeah. out. So especially if someone's recording on some old you know junky tape machine and you're able to listen back to it somehow, you're like, oh, we need to fix that part. You're a little flat. Blah 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 blah. I'm sure that every night you guys were dialed in it's like every show got better and better and better that's just how it's supposed to work and if, it, yeah. if you're not getting any better because you're on the road all the time or, or playing so often that it's like li literally daily with no sleep uh you know boom travel boom travel boom travel Woo. yeah Man. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, you the guys... ground. it's the greatest training ground you can have. We, yes. we uh, I, I, to this day, so much that I learned from back in those days uh, comes in very, very handy to me. You know, even as far as uh, doing big shows and there's something wrong with some piece of gear, I go, let me take a look at it. Hold on. Get my soldering iron, you know. We, we, uh, we just, and all the work I've done on my bases, I did by myself. I couldn't afford yeah. to pay anybody to do it. And plus, there wasn't anybody around. I think it was one or two guys in Buffalo that worked in guitars, if, if that. So wow. you had to figure it out on your own. So it's a great, great way uh, to train yourself to uh, uh, deal with everything imaginable in the business. Because eventually, everything will come at you, everything beyond your imagination. And uh, being fully prepared for it by so many years of that glorious struggle, if you will, uh, it was it was a blessing in disguise. Very well disguised, but certainly in, in disguise. So you've always had a had an awesome set of tools. <laughs> yeah, I used to carry. I, I used to carry in my little carry-on bag. 
uh, of my toolkit. So when I check into a hotel, later on I would do this. We, we would, uh, just because I, I'm an anti-rock star, I don't like, I'm a musician, I'm not a rock star, I don't like the rock star uh, thing at all. Amen so I would, I would go into a hotel and fix things. So the maid would come in and they'd say, hey, wait, this, this light wasn't working before, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> just in, in the reverse of what rock stars are supposed to do. I'm going to go in the hotel, fix things, and clean so, up after myself, too. You so you're, so you're, you're in the room, and if the toilet seat is not connected to the toilet, you would get I'm under there. And, yeah, you would. <laughs> yeah. So th wow. This, that's interesting um, because I wanted, ask, I wanted to ask you about your, your time with Dave uh, because David Lee Roth, you know, everybody – the outward appearance is he's just on all the time, just almost maniacal. <laughs> and and you seem to be a little more grounded. Everybody seems a little more grounded next to Dave. So <laughs> how were your were your were your personalities compatible or, or did you have to really work to, to sort of coexist with the David Lee Roth who's just on all the time? Uh, he is a phenomenon of nature, and I, I still—he's still my hero, and I'm still supremely and forever grateful for the break he gave me. And we had a ride together. We had a wonderful time. He's a jokester and a comedian. And uh, as a matter of fact, two of the guys were part of the Dave Gang. We called ourselves back in the summer of '85 and into '86. We're doing when we're putting everything together. Uh, Steve and Alan, uh, we worked for Van Halen, and then they came to work for Dave. Most everybody left Van Halen when Dave left and went with Dave. Most yeah. all, all the crew guys. Uh, uh, financial people and uh, 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 tour managers and all that. They were all the Van Halen guys and they all came with Dave. So it was uh, quite interesting. But uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, I learned so much from him. It's unbelievable. Uh, uh, it was like uh, getting a PhD in Showbiz 101. Uh, he, he, he knew it uh, inside and out. And he, he is on. If he's not on, he, he's probably not there. You know, he, he you know, he'll, he'll, Go. You want if he's not around, he's probably not on. But if he's around, he's on. Okay. <laughs> he's never not on. I, and, I feel. I feel amazing. like he's. I feel like he's one of these like, like you said. You, you said it best. He's just kind of a one of a kind without question. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And very he, very very smart and very good at coming. I'm. I'm. I just finished Ted Templeman's book. And Ted really praised his lyrics. And I don't think Van Halen would have been Van Halen without those lyrics because they were they weren't your typical "Baby, I Love You" lyrics. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, ain't talking about love, you know. I've been to the edge there. I stood and looked down. It was a, just great, great. Yeah. Uh, his, yeah. his lyric writing and uh, the, the stuff he did on "Eat 'Em and Smile" was, was was quite quite fantastic. I think if we would have kept that "Eat 'Em and Smile." Uh, vibe and style, uh, the band would have really uh, done incredibly well. Unfortunately, he made a left turn and did Skyscraper. But it, it takes a lot of courage to make to make that kind of a turn. I give him credit for the courage. I didn't like the results of it myself personally. But but I like when Bowie uh, was Ziggy Stardust, and suddenly he came out with uh, uh, the 1984 record. Let's dance, and, and, I think. What's that? Let's dance. Yeah, it was even before that. Oh wow! Through, uh, 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 I, I, when when he broke up the, the uh, uh, his original band with Mick Ronson and yeah. uh, and then went off and just went into the dance uh, uh, 
kind of thing. Uh, it took a lot of guts, you know, and uh, so I think Dave kind of did that same thing with Skyscraper. Unfortunately, it was not as successful as uh, as it could have been. Yeah. Um, I want to jump ahead to Mr. Big. Um, you had a number one smash hit song with Mr. Big. The song was called uh, To Be With You. And um, it to me, to my ears, it was almost an unlikely hit because the arrangement of that song was not what you typically heard on the radio at that time. Were you surprised that that song took off the way it did? Sure was. We had no idea. We put it was last on the record. If we would have known it was a hit, we would have put it first. Right. We, we released three singles off that record and just nothing was catching. Later on, all those songs at the live shows and such, you know, everybody's singing along. But it was a, a very unlikely situation. And it was a very organic hit, too, because uh, some, uh, uh, pardon me, a DJ in Lincoln, Nebraska named John Terry started playing the song and started getting phone phone uh, uh, action, meaning people called up and requesting it. And then the local stores in Lincoln started selling the record. And uh, so it was looking really good and it started spreading from there to other places. Atlantic Records in their infinite wisdom accused us of having our friends in Lincoln calling the station and going out and buying the records. Did you guys have friends in Lincoln? No. no. But, but, but I, at that point I said, you mean we could have faked it? If we, if, if, yeah, I would have. I would have done that if I knew we could do it. I would have, I would have been, you know, hey, you know, anybody in Lincoln here? Here's fifty bucks. Go buy, you know. Sure. I, I would if I knew I could have cheated. I, I would have at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they actually flew a guy to Lincoln to look and make sure it was really happening. They didn't even believe it, and so uh, sure enough, and they. Uh, we had a great NR guy, Kevin Williamson. He's still a friend friend of mine here in uh, Nashville. Uh, uh, he, he fought for his tooth and nail, but the label just, they were completely resistant and they would call radio stations that added to be with you. The label would call and say, wait, no, you should add the Phil Collins record. You know, we're trying to have a hit here, you know, and uh, they were actually resisted it and pushed it. And, and, and but our manager, Herbie, uh, in his incredible wisdom and his uh, amazing amount of power that he had, he just kept pushing for that, pushing for that, pushing for that. It started spreading and spreading and and then uh, after after we had a meeting with Doug Morris, he's the he's, he was the head of Atlantic Records at the time, and I remember uh, after after the record, and we're talking about the new next record, and uh, uh, he said uh, in a meeting, he goes, uh, "Well, I knew I knew to be with you. It's the first time I heard it." I go, "You liar! <laughs> true. You fought it tooth and nail." And uh, it was a pretty amazing story how, how it managed. So it's a little song, the, the, the little engine that could, the little song that could. And it became not only a hit in America for three weeks. If what have been in for one week, you'd have said, ah, it's just a fluke. Two two weeks, eh, maybe it's a little longer fluke. But three weeks, okay, it's a, it's a hit record. And then 14 other countries, it was number one. And it was our passport to the world. We would get on a plane and... Uh, the flight attendant, oh, were you guys in a band? Yeah, what's the band? And Mr. Biggs, you come down there and go, I'm the one. You're kidding. Yeah. You know, the yeah. pilot would come out, shake our hands, we get free drinks and moved up to first class. And uh, <laughs> That's hysterical. We, we, we arrived at the airport in, I believe it was Singapore. And uh, we knew that Singapore is a very, very, very strict. It says right on the landing card that you fill out, warning mandatory death sentence for drug trafficking is right on there 
right wow. under fly to Singapore it's in red warning mandatory death sentence for drug drug so now we weren't a drug band at all so we weren't worried about things like that but still it was like uh oh and I remember back in the day Singapore had a barbershop in the airport so if you came with long hair you had a choice go get it cut or get get out and it was a pretty pretty strict uh, country so we got there and the uh, the airplane door opened up and for everybody to get off and the police came on the plane and they and they were looking for us yeah. and we thought, oh my god this is, this could be because they wanted our autograph oh <laughs> we're like oh okay no problem so they didn't they didn't come on with machetes they came on with sharpies yeah. exactly so clippers, we, you know, and they just whisk us right past uh, immigration and customs and we, we could have had anything in our suitcase and nobody would have known about it so red, we're, red we're carpet there. was that red carpet Oh, it was unbelievable. And then uh, we didn't know, but the radio station had announced when our flight was getting in. Uh, so we're behind a wall that you, once you go around the corner, you're in public and uh, people waiting to pick up people from that just flew in and landed. We heard this little noise. What the hell's going on out there? We turned the corner. There was about 5,000 kids at the airport and they rushed and we backed up and uh, finally the police decided we'll make a gauntlet and you guys walk through it. And we, this is why we know those will never work. One step into the gauntlet, the crowd crushed. There was uh, uh, billy clubs and cop stuff falling on the floor. And we just ran to the cars and uh, Paul got scratched up. Some fan tried to grab him. And it was uh, so having a hit record leads to many adventures. <laughs> yes. All around the world, apparently. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Wow. That's amazing. If, if anybody ever gets to live uh, an experience like that, even one time, uh, oh. that that has to like uh, just blow your mind that that a song. Yeah, we are that, we are supremely all of us supremely grateful. Yes, for, for I, all I, that, you knew where I was going. It's kind of a heart, uh, a, a giant heart pump uh, that oh, yeah. that you that you help someone smile that day. You know. Yeah, and even to this day, I get, you know, I spend a lot of time, some people criticize me for it, but I, I, I read every comment and I the thumbs up or heart every comment and every piece of email that comes my way, I respond. Uh, sometimes not, maybe not right away, but I'm thinking, you know, somebody in Pakistan writes to me and I write back, you know, thank you so much, you know, I hope I get to your country, and I'm sure, it it uh, it made him feel very good that someone would just acknowledge him and thank him for his communication and uh, and for me uh, all I got to do is write my name down a autograph and and someone is very happy that's pretty easy that's a pretty great gig yeah. you know, just people come up would you sign my you know whatever so of course I will you know and uh, it's it's nice to be able to spread a little joy like that to people uh, due to the fact that we've had some some success and people listen to the music and as a musician you 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 put something out you don't know how it's touching people and I, we get i have a whole giant file of uh, emails of people that were down on their luck or doing bad and considered suicide or have some terrible uh, physical ailment and i'd write back and you know just do my best uh a little awkward sometimes especially if somebody's in really bad shape you know but would just do my best to encourage them and it's a uh, for me, that's a that is a real payoff to be able to do that for people. Oh, yeah. I think it's I think it's awesome that you view it that way because a lot yeah. of guys in your situation that have been doing this as long as as you have 
can can easily get jaded. So I, I love to hear that you see the value in that and that you take the time to do it because I know it's got to be time consuming as well. So yeah, yeah absolutely. But it, but it really is a joy. You know, I really do uh, enjoy. I got amazing friends on, on social media as much as social media can dog you and be awful and terrible in so many ways. There's a lot of good about it, too. And people from back in the day getting in touch with me that I probably would have never heard from again ever, you know, yeah. in the 70s when I was uh, playing in Buffalo. And it's pretty great. You know, it's a, there, there is there is a little bit of good in the world. Not that, not that it's easy to find sometimes, but it, it is there. Right, right. Well, good on you for doing that. Yeah, uh, we got to talk that, about winery dogs real yeah. quick before right we let you go. Uh, tell us uh, how you ended up crossing paths with Portnoy and Richie Kotzen. And how, how did that band develop and 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 where, what's your status today? I know you've uh, you, you, well, the last album was Hot Streak. Yeah. Um, and it's, that came out a while ago. Not, now, obviously, you're a busy man. And so are the other guys. Cotson's out doing something with Adrian Smith. Uh, anyway, tell us how the band formed, how you met those guys, and where you are today with Winery Dogs. Uh, sure thing. Yeah, we just finished a new record. It's mixed, mastered. I just saw the cover art and uh, had dinner with Richie last night. He's in Nashville to play tonight. I'm going to go out and see him play. Uh, uh, Mike and I uh, started getting involved years ago. We did a Rush tribute record. Mike Varney record and we awesome. stayed in touch and then we ended up doing a uh, a Who tribute show uh, Paul Gilbert as uh, Pete Townsend Gary Sharon as uh, Roger Daltrey uh, Mike as uh, Keith Moon of course and myself as John Entwistle that in a way awesome. and it's funny because when we did that we would do one of our shows I tweaked my back horribly so I had to wear a back brace under my shirt so I'm playing like really stiff. <laughs> wow, he's doing that whistle exactly. He even stands like him. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it whistle was kind of a lurch. Yeah, he was kind of the you know the the, the standing foundation rock of the band. You know, he's yeah. a wonderful guy. Uh, I had a great uh, opportunity to meet him and hang with him in L.A. Wow. A bunch. But anyway, so I played with Mike in a lot of things. And and uh, on the other parallel line, Richie and I had been friends for years and years and years when he first moved out to L.A. and. Uh, I always loved his playing. When Paul Gilbert left Mr. Big for a while, Richie came in and played. And it was just great, really great. And he sang his ass off. So uh, Mike and I were, so we should do a band and find a guitar player that sings. Yeah, okay. And um, we uh, were talking with Eddie Trunk about it. And I'm thinking, God, I got to know some great guitar player who sings really good. I don't know why Richie didn't come to my mind, but, but Eddie Trunk just looked at me and go, Richie got something. I go, well, of course. So, you know, I slapped my forehead and we got in touch with Richie, went over to his house. And I think that very first day we went over to speak with him, Mike and I, we went into the little room with the drum kit and there was a, a bass hung on the wall and a little amp. And we started, we put together a few songs, I believe that very first day, uh, just sitting jamming, the, or at least the foundation of a couple. And then uh, in Richie's little home studio, we put that first record together. And for me, Eat them and smile, lean into it, and the first Wandery Dogs record are my are my big three uh, wow. records that I've ever uh, been involved with. Pretty pretty amazing. A lot of other great records too, but the, those three are, are are the the top for me. And so that first Wandery Records uh, uh, Wandery Records Dog <laughs> Wandery Dog record. <laughs> that was, that was a mirror. What do you got in the mug? A little too much uh, Bailey's with my coffee there. Uh, anyway, the first Winery Dogs record, 
uh, I, I remember when it was finished, I was playing it for all my friends. And a lot of times I do a record and I don't play it for everybody. Yeah, yeah I don't know why. That's a good so feeling. So I did, yeah. uh, uh, laid into what I did, and certainly the first Winery Dogs record. So, so uh, it's a joy uh, to play in a three-piece band. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of room for bass. Most of my years in Talos were the three three piece version, and so that was that was kind of what I grew up on. And uh, it's it's a, just a riot to work with uh, Richie. He's also a dear friend, Mike as well. We're all good friends, and uh, on stage it's a it's a powerful uh, locomotive roaring down the tracks. And I watch Mike like a hawk because I'm all about the drummers and drums, and he's just a brilliant player. And we. I'll do a, you know, he'll do a chicken up, up, and I'll do a chicken up, up, and same exact thing on my bass. We look at each other like, how did you know that? I don't know. How did you know? We get this bass and drum ESP happening. Really, really cool. And Richie's voice is mind blowing. Yeah. I'll be able to see him, like I said, tonight here in Nashville. Is it? I, cool. I'm not going to ask you for, uh, to tell us your influences, but I, is it is it fair to say that you might possibly have been as influenced or more influenced by guitarist than bassist, considering your style? Uh, actually, no. I, I all music and musicians, including a lot of classical music, a lot of cello stuff, a lot of keyboard things. I listened to Bach's Well Tempered Clavier. I had a box set back in the LP days at vinyl, it was three records per box, seven record, seven boxes, 21 records, 42 sides of one guy playing the harpsichord. That's a lot of harpsichord. Uh, uh, and, and it was a, a very uh, pivotal record for me because I just, the inventions, literally that's what they were called too, uh, the left hand being the bass hand and the right hand being somewhat the lead hand, not always true in all cases, but nevertheless. And hearing that left hand work with the right hand, not only uh, doubling what it does, but counterpoint uh, and, and uh, independence between the two, uh, for me, was what bass and guitar should be. Uh, uh, Sometimes you're, you're, you're holding a note, of course, but then other times you move. And when you move, it makes that sound different. Play the same notes over and over again, move the bass line underneath them, and they're going to sound different. So that was, that was a big, huge influence on me. Guitar, of course, my first concert was Jimi Hendrix. Uh, that was, uh, and I was a guitar uh, fan. But, uh, and on that note, even more so with drums, I saw Billy Cobham play with... Uh, Dreams, the band before Mahavishnu Orchestra, where we got the title for the song Inner Money right. Flame from. Yeah. Uh, uh, Billy Cobham with that band, the Brecker Brothers on horns, and uh, man, he just he changed the drum world completely. And uh, it was always it's always been about drums. So yeah, guitar is a big part of my life, but uh, other things I think are in there equally, if not more so. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the world never realized that you're playing harpsichord rock and roll on the bass. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're kind of like, you know, harpsichord stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, That's there's amazing. a. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, I'm still learning and I'm still working on it. And I, I'm down here in my little studio every day. I get up, feed the cat, and I go for a couple of hours on this thing. And still. Nice. And still learning a lot more about everything. It never ends. Some kid wrote to me years ago and said, I've been playing bass for six months and I'm bored. What should I do? And I wrote back, quit. 
yeah. Never you <laughs> right. I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. That's that kind of puts it in perspective, big time. I I, uh, I saw an interview or re- or read an interview with you, and this was so long ago. It it could have been a radio thing. I I don't know, but you you went off a little bit about the brilliance of ACDC. Wow. And and uh, I never forgot it because a player like you, someone who is, for lack of a better term, busy on the bass, but still appreciates one note for three minutes. Oh, yeah. No kidding. And how Incredible. and how important that is for the other instruments to play against and yeah. not and not be bored uh because you you have to be in you have to be in the pocket yeah there's all of these things that are important to the song to the singer to all the instrumentation to the hooks even if it's one note for three minutes oh yeah uh, I, I, you, I, remember I, when I think we that first they blew our minds I, I absolutely love that band yeah and and i think it was more of an angus comment that you gave about how you know here's angus young playing one note guitar solos you know, he's playing a guitar solo for one minute, just, just making it do all of this. He's playing one effing note for, you know, a long time and the band's just pumping behind it and and the audience is going wackadoo and starry eyed and out of control. And this was something that I found amazing that you who have uh, who has a lot of respect people were hearing you talk about someone playing one note for a long time i mean so great i remember uh, uh the first aerosmith record tom hamilton the song one way street they said yeah, headed down the one way street and he's just like two bass notes there in the middle of that breakdown of ah i love that 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 aspect of it so yeah, yeah i um i like to be able to do anything i can to be able to play anything that I'm hearing or someone else can do, some weird harpsichord thing or some uh, flute solo or, or uh, whatever. Uh, I, I like to have those capabilities, but I also uh, like to play music, which requires you to do all kinds of things. I played on a, I produced a, a singer songwriter here in Nashville named John Statham and uh, just these amazing story songs. Everyone I played the record, their tears coming out of their eyes. Wow. Unbelievable songs, and I played bass on it, which required me to play, you know. <laughs> that was Chord, it, you know. Playing chords, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was it was beautiful. It, it uh, so it, yeah. I, people assume, oh, he's just going to want to go crazy all night long. Oh no, uh, it's all about the placement, right? Oh no, I agree. Yeah. And, one more, one more question. You've been more than gracious with your time, but I want to end on a Talus note since we brought you here to talk about Talus today and many other things. Thank you for indulging us. Uh, the new album, 1985. Uh, now, Phil is no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, do you have any plans to possibly bring in a singer and tour that record? Uh, no plans, but there are some intentions. Uh, we would like to uh, honor Phil mm-hmm. by... Uh, uh, having this music heard, spreading the word about the record so more people will, will hear him. 
Uh, Phil was an incredible person, one of the really finest human beings I've ever worked with. Not a single trace of lead singer's disease. He was the nicest guy you could ever imagine. Uh, Friendly and cool with everybody all the time. Dynamic performer, great songwriter. And he sang this record. We didn't know at the time. He knew he was having a serious health situation, but he got up to that mic and annihilated every every time. It was just incredible. Finding out later that he knew when he was singing increased, if it was even possible, to increase my respect for him any more than I already had, uh, even more, because he, he shouldered a, a, a terrible burden, but got up anyway and sang his ass off and really delivered on this record. So it was uh, quite, quite inspiring to see. And uh, I he sounds I, amazing. He sounds yeah, he sounds like he's a complete powerhouse. So great. Yeah. So we uh, initially we did this record. We want to, you know, talk about the good old days of 85. But it's kind of morphed into I want this record to be uh, Phil's legacy uh, for he's got two wonderful sons and a wonderful family that loves him completely. And we all in the band do, too. So we would really like it to be a little stamp of uh, legitimacy on his uh, legacy uh, that he did such an incredible job on this record. And yeah. uh, well, so we hope we hope we can perform in some capacity. Uh, there's a couple of people that have come forward that uh, might uh, be interested in singing, so we'll see. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sure. There's I, I love there. it that I love it that Metal Blade Records is behind it one one thousand percent. They really well. are. It's really They're really wonderful. great to see an old school label be there with you guys. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, the guy, the one of the heads at Metal Blade, Mike Faley. He and I went to grammar school together. He was the uh, we stole him from another band. He was work. Who was a crew guy for another band? We stole him. He be, he was our uh, a roadie, and then a monitor mixer, then front of house mixer, and then we moved him off that. And he was our agent, and then co manager. And then when I moved out to L.A., I brought him out there to take care of my biz, and he got the gig at Metal Blade. Wow. And uh, so we we've been together since grammar school. So my my connection to Metal Blade is a is a strong one uh, at the heart for sure. Wow! Wow! Well, Billy, we're going to let you go. We can't thank you enough for all your time today. You've been more than gracious. Thank you for indulging us with all your great stories, man. You're you're the kind of guest we love to have on this show because you're a great talker and you've got so many great stories. Uh, We wish you continued success in all your endeavors. We hope the 1985 album is heard by many, many people, uh, both for you and for the legacy of Phil, as you mentioned. Uh, It's a great record, folks. Look for it in September. It's called 1985, Talus. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner with a huge thanks to our special guest today, Billy Sheehan on the Talk Louder podcast. I don't mean any harm by this. It's a Zoom thing, but uh, like they're looking for the exit button. You know, they're yeah. trying to leave the meeting and, and I know I, and, I, and I'm kicking them. <laughs> See you later, Billy. I don't want to kick Billy Sheehan out of our oh, Zoom man. room. It's the last person I want to kick out of the room. (laughs) This sinking feeling in your heart. You know what I mean? As I'm doing, I'm like, just going to hell. I'm just going to hell for kicking Billy Sheehan out of the room. Oh, man. But, you know, we're still recording and uh, we're going to do our intro now. Yeah, and then I got to get to work. But wow, what a guest, huh? Yeah, it was awesome. He was awesome. What a sweetheart. I knew it was going to be good. And we we got in all the punches, you know, with the history and the stories and the Portnoy, the name dropping. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I'll mention I'll mention I'll mention that in the in the intro whenever you're whenever you're. Okay. All right.